Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. somebody who can be constantly changing, constantly trying to change himself into somebody else. But it seems also as if the poem is suggesting that all of those changes are in the service of getting back to the self that he was 20 years ago, and the self not just in himself, but also in all his relationships. But even though 20 years have passed, you might think that things would have changed at home, things have changed, but he can fix that. He can kill all the invaders. He can reestablish his marriage on exactly the same footing that it was 20 years ago, re-establish his relationship with his son. Everything could be exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. And I think the poem is also showing us the, the ways that that fantasy might not fully work. Most obviously in the way that Penelope constantly says that she's marked by tears, that she, she's changed by grief, that she's not actually the same as she was 20 years ago. But that we also see it, for instance, in the ways that... Um, the dog, is, this is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the poem, right? That Argos the dog has been waiting for his old owner, Odysseus, to come back for 20 years. And he finally sniffs him and hears his voice and pricks up his ears and then he dies. Because in fact, for dogs, you can't stop time. You can't turn back to the way you were 20 years ago because that's a whole lifetime. So I think it's also playing around with this question of even without being immortal, even without staying with Calypso forever, is it possible for a human being to be themselves? fully themselves, despite whatever changes, over the course of this long, decades-long period? Or, or might it be that maybe through no choice of your own, through the things that happen to you, the people you meet, the things that are imposed on you, the situations that are imposed on you, might things actually be, change you? What is the Odyssey and how does this epic poem speak to the 21st century? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with British classicist Emily Wilson, whose new translation of the Odyssey has just been published by W.W. Norton and Company, where Emily argues... It is a poem that has the power to speak to people from many different social backgrounds in the contemporary Anglo-American world. Emily goes on to argue the canonical status of Homer, combined with the philosophical and ethical challenges involved in treating these poems as a source of truth, led to a tradition of allegorising the various adventures of Odysseus. So, how much of the Odyssey reflects real historical events, and what is its status in the Western canon? My name is Emily Wilson. I'm a professor of classical studies and comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania, the university in Philadelphia in the States. And I grew up in Oxford, England, and I read classic literary humaniores at Oxford. Then I did an MPhil in um, English literature, and then I did a PhD at, at Yale in classics and comparative literature. And I've worked on various aspects of classical literature and ancient philosophy and the reception of antiquity in later eras, especially in the early modern period. And over the last 10 years or so, I've got really interested in both the theory and practice of translation. So I've translated um, some, I've done some first translations of Seneca's tragedies, or some tragedies by Euripides. And now, most recently, I've done a first translation of the Odyssey in Iambic Pentameter, which 
of course, it's a much translated poem, and I was trying to bring out different elements in the original that I felt were represented by most contemporary translations. Congratulations on the translation of the Odyssey, Emily. I have to say it was a vibrant read, very stimulating. And I must commend you on your introductions to the text because they were incredibly informative and accessible for a whole range of different types of readers. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Is it fair to say that the Odyssey is a poem that travels with you all through life and will in it the different questions that the different um, players in the poem bring up also resonate in different ways given anybody's experience as they journey through life? Absolutely, yes. I mean, for me personally, I first encountered the story when I was eight years old when I was in an elementary school production of the a kid's version of the Odyssey and I got to play the goddess Athena, which is really thrilling. And, and I, I think I, I definitely related to the story on certain deep emotional levels, but I wouldn't have been able to say exactly why. I mean, I, I, I loved it as a story about feeling out of place and about wandering and not quite knowing where you are. Um, and I think as I've gotten older, I sort of resonated, some of the things that have resonated much more deeply with me have been to do with um, how identity is formed against the places that you're in and the, and the relationships that you have and how identity might change over time. I mean, Odysseus has this central protagonist who is, tries to be many different people and also to be nobody. And that whole question about who are you and how is who you are defined by the places you are, and what is home, what is it to be either different or same from who you used to be. Those kinds of questions, I think, change as you get older. And I can imagine whether if you're a parent or not, or you've had a great love in your life and you're looking at relationships and commitment or whatever it is, that the um, the, the poem will speak to you in, in very different ways. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I feel like both uh, like both sides of the Odysseus Penelope marriage, like both sides of like, questions about loyalty, questions about what is it to have a long-term relationship, what is it also to feel angry or abandoned, and those questions also resonate differently. And I'm, I'm the mother of three daughters. I definitely also feel much more interested in these various different parent and quasi-parent relationships that are there in the poem, both Odysseus and his father, Odysseus and his dead mother, Telemachus and his difficult relationship with his mother, Telemachus and his also difficult relationship with his father, the various quasi-parents that, t- that Telemachus, Odysseus' son, encounters in the course of the poem, that he has a quasi-parental relationship with the old slave, Eumaeus, and also with his father's old buddies, um, Nestor and Menelaus. So I think it's sort of framing all these different questions about what is a real parent, what is a real parental relationship, to what extent all these those relationships always fought and painful, what is it that defines particular relationships? And what is a wife and what is a husband and will in that how we understand our roles will in relationships? Yes, exactly. I mean, I guess also the fact that Odysseus has so many different um, intense relationships with smart female characters. I mean, I think that also is a way of the poem sets up um, both the central um, or for the plot defining arc of, the, of getting back with Penelope, but also that we see him with multiple other female characters, including maybe most sustainably Athena, but then also with we, we see how he connects with Helen, we see how he connects with Calypso, Circe, Nasticar, um, even Eurycleia, the old nurse. So we, have, we see these various different um, binary relationships, each of which, of course, is, is deep and important, but it's not that, that they, only the marital relationship matters.
So for anyone who hasn't read um, The Odyssey, can you briefly sketch out the story and what exactly happens? And I know a lot happens. <laughs> a lot happens. In a, in a way, it's difficult to sketch the plot because the plot is surprising. The plot doesn't quite start where you expect. It's the story of the Nostos. Nostos means homecoming of Odysseus from Troy. But it doesn't sort of start in a linear way with here's Odysseus leaving Troy and this is exactly what happens day by day until he gets there. Instead, it starts um, almost at the end of the geographical journey. It begins with the journeys of Telemachus while his father is away. And then it's only in book five that we get to the sort of backstory of how Odysseus has been lost at sea and the various different um, strange encounters that he's had with different cultures, different peoples along the way. And then halfway through the poem, he arrives back geographically in Ithaca. But that's not the completion of his nostos, because, of course, he also has to figure out how to rebuild his household, how to reforge the relationships that have been, that from which he's been absent for 20 years, and also how to kill the suitors who've been surrounding his wife, Penelope, for the last few years. So, that, so the whole question of what is it to rebuild a home is central to the plot. And, you know, when you think about some of the challenges that parents and men and women are facing today in their own lives, ideas on um, what it means to have a home belonging and all those types of themes are so relevant today, aren't they? They are relevant today. I mean, I think they're also relevant to um, questions that, of course, are are very, very resonant right now about immigration, migration, refugees. That's the question of if somebody shows up at your door in this poem, there's this idea that... um, they might be a god or a hero in disguise. If even if they're looking ragged and dirty, you should let them in. That's called Zania, and Deuce watches over that. So questions about hospitality. And I think the poem is also complex about that question about to what extent should we let other people into our homes? Because on, on some level, it shows us both how it can go right and also how it can go horribly wrong. When you let other people into your homes, then they can turn out to be suitors who eat all your food, and then you have to kill them. One of the questions you tackle in your introductions um, to the text is the authorship of the poem. And I'm just wondering, from all your research and all your reading, when was the Odyssey composed? What can we actually say? And why and how can we attribute it to Homer? Yes, I mean, there's there's a a funny saying that the Odyssey was in the air, but actually not written by Homer, but somebody else of the same name. Nobody really knows who wrote these poems, and nobody really knows how exactly they got to be written poems at all. They're based on a centuries-old oral poetic tradition, because the Greek-speaking world was illiterate for many centuries. Um, and and it, scholars still disagree about how exactly did that process happen, that they, that they got composed as these monumental poems, which seemed too long to be composed, to be performed all at once in a single oral performative context. Um, so possibly a, some genius poet at the end of the tradition um, recited for a scribe. Perhaps there were several people who got together to compose these monumental works. And it's, we, we really don't know. What we do know is that presumably they were composed at some point or other in the late 8th or early 7th century. But again, even that, people dispute um, exactly what the, what the date was. You bring up the work of Samuel Butler, who uh, suggested in the 19th century that the Odyssey must have been written by a woman because it has uh, portrays uh, women in such a kind of sympathetic manner. So I'm just wondering, what's your own gut in that? Because there's so many different theories on the text itself and again on the authorship and some of the kind of the influences. Uh, my thought is that I think the idea that only only women would 
bother to write about women. I think that's a little bit problematic. Also, the idea which Butler also brings up that he he claims that the fighting scenes in the Odyssey are no good. So again, that proves that it must be written by a girl. I don't think there was a particularly good argument. Um, the fact that we don't have any evidence whatsoever for archaic, epic um, composers being female, I think, quite counts to some extent against the theory. I mean, it means that it's pure speculation based on somewhat less than nothing. Um, I mean, I think it's quite possible that over the course of the many centuries that these myths were being composed, might there have been some elite women who participated in the construction of the myth. That seems perfectly possible. But that's very that's a far cry from saying the author of the Odyssey, if we can even use the word author, was a woman. I don't think that's very, very unlikely. But Penelope um, Odysseus is what long-suffering wife is such an extraordinarily interesting character, not alone in terms of her resilience, but in terms of her creativity, her patience, how she's very psychologically adept at playing competing forces and holding her own. And um, she, she, she endures so much. So to present a character like Penelope so many hundreds of years ago was absolutely groundbreaking, really. Well, it's hard to say what's groundbreaking, right? If we don't have literature from, or, or you know, recorded voices from before the Odyssey, how do we know if it's groundbreaking? Right? I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no ground before that. Um, but it's certainly true that, that I think both Penelope and all the other female characters in this poem are totally fully realised that they're rounded human beings, that we have this um, both of a fascinating sense that on some level Penelope is always veiled, she's always behind the literal veils, and also her mind is, Failed partly from herself as well as from other people, that she's constantly in the grip of desires and wishes which are ambivalent and hard to keep track of, and also that she's always um, she's always constrained in certain ways by by her own position socially. Um, but which, of course, is not true of the female divine characters, or even of Helen, who's semi-divine. That those female characters are given this very different model of um, agency. But of course, I mean. The question of to what extent did people in ancient Greece or people in archaic Greece respond to that as challenging in some way to a, an androcentric society? I don't know. I mean, it's sort of hard to say that, right? Because we don't know, we don't have contemporary reception of the Homeric poems. We have much, much, much later reception of the poems. How would you describe Calypso? She's, a, she's a, one of the many female fascinating characters. She's the goddess on whose island Odysseus spends um, seven years. She's a cave goddess called a nymph. So the nature goddesses in ancient Greek mythology are called nymphs. So they're either associated with water, with rivers, with seas, or with caves. Um, and she she has a, a couple of wonderful speeches insisting that uh, there's a double standard in the, among the gods on Mount Olympus, because when male gods take up with a mortal female, they get to do whatever they want, whereas when a when a female goddess takes up with a mortal man, there's usually trouble and the, the other gods usually insist that she has to die. So she complains when Hermes comes sent by Zeus to say that she has to send Odysseus back and she has to lose the man that she's done all this work to, to rescue, fish out of the sea and keep with her. So I think she's, she's a wonderfully impassioned and um, we see both her power and her vulnerability in a way that's, that's really, I think, gripping and moving. 
I might get you to read um, uh, some of Calypso because uh, she's such an extraordinary character and um, as you, you mentioned there, her vulnerability. You know, she's um, there's so many sides to her but her emotional side is so interesting and so real and her demands are so real that, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of women who could relate to her. Absolutely, yes. Yes, and, and I, mean, I think one, uh, one can relate to both sides in the relationship too. I mean, one can relate both to the Odysseus who wants to get out of the relationship and to the um, to the person who wants the relationship not to end. So I think, I think both sides are very, very, very described. And I can certainly read part of, so if you read her speech. Lovely, yeah. Describing the book. So this is after we've had a, we've had a marvellous description of Calypso's cave, which maybe I'll just read a couple of lines of that first, just so that you can see how vividly her world is described. I think it's also important for realising how, how magical she is. But she's not just a woman being dumped. She's not a woman. She's a goddess, and she has enormous power. Um, so she's in her cave. The scent of citrus and the brittle pine suffused the island. Inside, she was singing and weaving with a shuttle made of gold. Her voice was beautiful. Around the cave, a luscious forest flourished. Alder, poplar, and scented cypress. It was full of wings. Birds nested there, but hunted out at sea. The owls, the hawks, the gulls with gaping beaks. A ripe and verdant vine hung thick with grapes and stretched a coil around her cave. Four springs spurted with sparkling water as they laced with crisscross currents intertwined together. The meadows softly bloomed with celery and violets. So I think you can also see in that description how she's the goddess whose name means hiding. And she, she both is hidden and is the source of hiding. But then when after Hermes comes to tell her that he... He has instructions from Zeus that she has to let Odysseus go. This is what she says. Calypso shuddered and let fly at him. You cruel, jealous gods! You bear a grudge whenever any goddess takes a man to sleep with as a lover in her bed. Just so the gods who live at ease were angry when rosy-fingered Dawn took up Orion and from her golden throne chased Artemis, attacked and killed him with her gentle arrows. Demeter, with the cornsbrows in her hair, indulged her own desire, and she made love with Yassian and triple-furrowed fields, till Zeus found out, hurled flashing flame and killed him. So now, you male gods are upset with me for living with a man, a man I saved. Zeus pinned his ship and with his flash of lightning smashed it to pieces. All his friends were killed out on the wine-dark sea. This man alone, clutching the keel, was swept by wind and wave and came here to my home. I cared for him and loved him and I vowed to set him free from time and death forever. Still, I know no other god can change the will of Zeus. So let him go, if that is Zeus's order, across the barren sea. I will not give an escort for this trip across the water. I have no ship or rowers. But I will share what I know with him and gladly give useful advice so he can safely reach his home. It's terrific stuff. And in a lot of ways, you could possibly argue that, you know, she gets him way more than maybe uh, Penelope, the wife. What do you think? Um, in certain ways, yes. I mean, we don't know exactly how long have they been married before he leaves with Penelope. Yeah. Um, we, I think what we, what we constantly get from Penelope and her perspectives on her marriage is that she's constantly defining her marriage by, by lot. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it doesn't, Calypso also defines the relationship in terms of loss, but Calypso also defines it in terms of what she was able to achieve, what she was able to do for Odysseus. Mm. 
Boaz Penelope, uh, um, the relationship is defined by both how, how he abandoned her for 20 years, how much her face and her bed are marked by grief and by tears, yeah. and how even when she's speaking to him disguised, he makes her cry already, even before he's revealed who he is. And then when they get back together, the, the, the way the relationship works, that they reunite, is that he talks about their olive tree bed that he built. It's a bed defined as his bed. And it's a bed which, is, um, which shows his artistry, his capacity to join nature with art. Um, so I think that it's, it's very clear that the choice to leave Calypso also is a choice to leave a world in which Odysseus could be immortal, but he would have to be subject to somebody more powerful than himself. Whereas once in going back to Ithaca, there's nobody at Ithaca once he's achieved his, his end and killed all the suitors and tried to dominate the place again, there's, nobody going, there's going to be nobody more powerful than him. So the choice to, to come back to Ithaca is partly a choice to, to be that particular kind of hero, the powerful man whose, whose story is the most important story. Irrespective that she's a goddess, what I really liked about Calypso is that she's very realistic and pragmatic and um, she sees Odysseus in all his faults and she loves him and she's realistic within her love. And um, that is very consoling. It's lovely. I mean, it's lovely also that she's very aware that, that one of the things they have in common, maybe the central thing they have in common, is that they both like um, hiding themselves. They both like trickery. And that, of course, is is a central feature in each of Odysseus's um, important relationships. It's, an, it's a central feature of his relationship with Athena as well, that they both love being in disguise and tricking each other and seeing through disguises from other people. And it's a feature of his relationship with Circe, Calypso, um, and I guess Helen as well. And it's a, it's, it's a feature of, of his relationship with Penelope as well to some extent, because of course Penelope um, constructs the famous trick where, whereby she tricks the, her suitors saying that she can't marry any of them until she's finished weaving a shroud for her father-in-law Laertes when he dies. And so every, every day she performs her weaving on the web and then every night she unpicks it. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a cunning trick, which is, is a delaying trick. It manages to stave them off, although only for three years. So in a way, it's, it's similar to the, the way her husband operates, that it's by trickery, by deceit. But it's also different from the way her husband operates in that it's, um, it's about creating inaction. It's a, it's a trick whose only purpose is to, is to stop something from happening. Whereas if you think about the various things that Odysseus manages to construct, his various devices or mechanite, they're all about actually getting somewhere. He constructs a raft, constructs a bed, he constructs a wooden horse. Those achieve particular ends, whereas Penelope's trick is achieving stagnation. So I think there are ways that with the, with the various goddesses and their capacities for trickery, those are also um, capacities which can get them places because they have so much more power than she does. All she can achieve by her trickery is to stave things off for a while. There's about a hundred different men in Odysseus and as you say he's very good at tricks and deceit and um, you know he's a master of deception when he wants to and he makes some um, monumentally crazy uh, decisions throughout the narrative but within that um, is it that you know that he is so complex um, he's so accomplished uh, he's so multi-layered in so many different ways that that's why that's why he's such an enjoyable character. I, it's why I find that, I mean, it's, it's one of the great pleasures of the poem is just seeing how many, so you don't get bored of this character because at, at every moment he's going to 
come up with another trick or tell another lie. I mean, it's like reading about Br'er Rabbit or these various other trickster characters, but with an element of storytelling about it. But he's also, a, in a way, a master poet. The, the central books of the poem are told by him. And so he's very different from any other Homeric character in that he he has many different epithets. But of course, most Homeric characters have a sort of standard thing that they're famous for, like their superpower. And for Achilles, the superpower is being swift-footed, which also goes with being short-lived, that he he's going very, very fast towards a particular goal, which ultimately is both honor and death. And he's always described as swift-footed Achilles. Whereas Odysseus has many different things, and they're all to do with his manyness. But he's constantly polymetis, polymechanos. The poly means many. So he's he's many stratagemed, many many cunning intelligence, many many different things he he can do, many stories he can tell, many personae he can inhabit. And then combined with that also is this way that he is um, he's willing, for instance, most most obviously in the episode with the Cyclops, Polyphemus, he's willing to pretend to be nobody at all. And that, that, that capacity to give up his name or to be somebody else is what enables him to survive. And he's so wonderfully hard to pin down. Although um, Tina, the goddess of strategic thinking, um, is well up for him, isn't she? She is, yes. I mean, I love the conversation that they have in book 13, which is when he gets back to Ithaca. And he doesn't realise he's back in Ithaca because, of course, she's disguised the island. So the first of the many recognitions has to be... Um, Odysseus struggling to recognise his own place, but he can't, and he can't do that at first because Athena's tricked him, and she also manages to to to, to display to him how how much better than better at disguises, better at seeing through disguises she is than him, even though that's his superpower, but he, she's better at it. So they both are are known for this quality of, as you say, strategic thinking, which in Greek is metis, uh, or and also mechana that that. Athena is the daughter of the goddess Metis, the goddess of cunning, cunning intelligence, who was swallowed by Zeus because Zeus didn't want her, her children to be more powerful than he was. So he's retained her power within himself, and then from Zeus's head, from that union, comes Athena. So, so that part of, part of the close connection between Athena and Odysseus is that they share this quality of cunning intelligence of always being the smartest person in the room. And he has it to the maximum degree that a human being could have it. And she has it as a goddess. So, of course, that's even better. You argue in your introductions, Emily, that the poem circles around the question of whether an elite woman's worth depends entirely on sexual fidelity. And you go into one of the big um, questions within the narrative that, you know, when Odysseus is uh, telling his wife Penelope about his epic voyage, he does strategically decide not to mention any of the messing with Calypso and some of the more interesting aspects of that voyage. So I'm just wondering, how do you feel all about that as a woman translator, as a female translator? I, I, it's not like it's very surprising that, of course, there is this double standard. I mean, I think what's interesting to me is, I mean, I'm not sure if it's interesting to me as a woman. It's just interesting to me how this is one of many double standards that there are in the poem. There are also other double standards that have to do with poverty and class and how we treat strangers. Um, what's interesting to me is just how precisely the poem seems to articulate the double standard. But it's not that it sort of shies away from... Um, is an androcentric society one in which women are perfectly happy with their subordinate role? And what's, what's so fascinating, as we've talked already about, is how miserable Penelope is, how constrained she is. So to me, it's not it, it's not exactly surprising that, of course, the poem depicts her as being in a, in a constrained position. That doesn't seem surprising. And the idea that, of course, Odysseus 
is going to justify his own position and that we're going to be shown um, him justifying himself. That, again, is not very surprising. I think what's surprising is that we get so many perspectives which, which cast other kinds of light on that, that we see her grief as well as his power. Um, and that we see also that, of course, um, there are different kinds of meanings to loyalty, fidelity, honesty, and truth, depending on whether you're male or female. And, of course, sexual perversity matters in a different way for women in this poem than for men, such that the, if, you, if you care about the household and you think the household depends on the power of the man over his legitimate children, then what a man does outside the house doesn't matter, whereas what a woman does in terms of, is she going to sleep with one of the suitors and destroy the household? That does matter um, for, the, for the sake of the household. So I think what's interesting to me is, is less... Um, isn't it unfair? Because, duh, of course, it's unfair. But just the way that the poem is so precise in tracing out why does this work? How does this work? How do these various different characters feel entirely differently about it? And also the fact that we have um, the, the immortal realm as well, I think, gives a very really interesting, different perspective on it. Because, for instance, we have the insect narrative in book eight of the extramarital love affair between Aphrodite and Ares, in which um, the the cheated on husband, Hephaestus, gets back, traps the lovers in his bed. So in a way, he, he performs the, the part of, of Odysseus coming back and getting, and getting rid of the suitors. But in the divine realm, the, the love affair between the wife and the adulterer, it's no big deal. Aphrodite is totally fine. She, goes, she puts on some amazing oil and puts on a beautiful dress and she goes back to her, her other cult center on her island and she's fine. It's all okay. So I think it also shows you how the particular dynamics of um, the constraints on mortal women are dependent on a particular social construct. The poem is aware that if we were all gods, the rules would be different. And in relation to that double standard, it wouldn't make sense that, you know, if Odysseus came back, given his, he's, you know, he's such a pragmatic fellow, that it makes sense that he is a bit, um, um, you know, strategic and a bit sketchy with the truth. And after all, he does turn up years and years later. The bigger picture is, although you could possibly think that maybe Penelope was a bit naive. A bit naive. Um, I'm not sure that I do see her as, as naive. I think I see her as very aware of the of the choices she doesn't have. I mean, she refers, um, when she's acknowledging him back as her husband, to Helen, who made the opposite choice. And the poem sets up how, for an elite woman with a, with an absent, with a husband who's absent at war, you have these three choices. You have the choice that Helen makes of go off with somebody else. And then you may start a war. There may be, there may be trouble for other people. It may be a whole big bother. And then you may end up with your old husband anyway. And Penelope points out that in, in, that, in that speech that if Helen had realized the bad consequences, then maybe she wouldn't have done it. Maybe she was impelled by a goddess. Maybe, maybe she didn't fully think it through. And then the other, other choice that the woman could have is to do a clytemnestra and just kill the husband when he gets back. And then it would solve the problem. Um, and that, of course, of course, in the terms of the poem, is the wrong choice. And, of course, um, several of the 